Hi, everybody. Welcome to North Coast Chronicles podcast, Tales from the Great Lakes. I'm your host, Helen Brohl. Join me every month on the American Shoreline Podcast Network as we explore the history, beauty, and adventures of the Great Lakes, America's fourth seacoast. Check out the entire collection of ocean, coastal, and inland podcasts on ASPN at coastalnewstoday.com. This month's podcast is called Tales from the Lake of Shining Waters. In the Iroquoian language, the Lake of Shining Waters is Lake Ontario. As you would expect, the First Nations were the first to live in the watershed. In fact, people have lived in the Ontario region for more than 12,000 years. Before the arrival of the European settlers, Algonquian and Iroquoian-speaking native communities had settled in the area. Lake Ontario is one of the five Great Lakes of North America. It is surrounded on the north, west, and southwest by the Canadian province of Ontario, and on the south and east by the state of New York, whose water boundaries meet in the middle of the lake. Our guest today is Mark Matson, founder and president of Lake Ontario Waterkeepers. Welcome, Matt. Thank you, Helen. Mark Matson has spent the last decade building a network of successful community-focused environmental organizations across Canada. In addition to being Swim, Drink, Fishes president, he is the waterkeeper for Lake Ontario, a water quality advisor to the International Joint Commission, a board member for the U.S.-based Waterkeepers Alliance, and a member of Ontario's Great Lakes Guardians Council. Mark is the perfect person to help us understand what Lake Ontario is about as a watershed, a water resource, and a source of joy for those who experience it every day. But with us always is our trusty engineer and my co-producer, Tyler Buckingham. Hi, Tyler. What's going on? Hey, Helen. It's good. How are you? Good. Thank you. Um, Not happy about last night's results of the Cleveland Guardians-Yankees game, but other than that, I'm doing pretty good. That's right. The baseball season has begun. Yeah, I don't know why uh, Judge on the Yankees suddenly got a hot bat, you know, playing Cleveland, but... You know, long-suffering Clevelander, long-suffering Cleveland fan, but, uh, you know, we move on and wait for the next game. There's always next year. <laughs> I'm hoping just the next game. But You're right. There's always, <laughs> there's always the next game. It's the beginning of the season. I'm sorry. Oh, my gosh. It's written us off already. Tyler, Tyler. Well, actually, I do think uh, we've got a long way to go, and I think it's all going to be good. But, um, Tyler, in our last podcast called Dance Halls and Full Dress Balls, it was a bit of a departure for us because we diverted a bit from the resource side of our discussions to talk with folks about the Gilded Age of the Great Lakes. We had Bob Taggetts, who is a resident historian from the Grand Hotel on Mackinac Island, Michigan, and Leslie Heinrichs, who is the archivist for the Pfister Hotel in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. Now, both hotels were built in the late 1800s and both have incredible pedigrees, but for slightly different reasons. In any case, I know that, uh, I hate to say the word hankering, but boy, I had a hankering for, for uh, you know, putting it on my, my calendar this year to go to both hotels. What was your impression, Tyler? Well, uh, I... Uh, just this past weekend, I went and saw the Biltmore, which is a Gilded Era mansion of that same period. And I just couldn't help but think that the same sorts of clientele might be walking the the main halls of both of those uh, hotels in the Great Lakes, that same era. And man, you know, there was there is something just really stunning and beautiful and transportive about these old structures. And I thought it was really cool to learn about them. Yeah, I mean, we we admitted up front that, you know, um, especially with regard to um, the Grand Hotel, which was really for the wealthy, um, you know, that it, you know, that you talk about the Gilded Age, it also harkens to a time that, you know, um, the upper class, you know, um, had it made, 
and those below did not. But nevertheless, um, as you said, you really get transported. And I'm so glad that these historic hotels are still around and that they're kept up. Um, and of course, both hotels are available to anybody and any anywhere. And um, um, I'd been, that, like I said, been to the Fister once, been to the Grand Hotel once, never stayed in them. But I definitely think it's on the list of uh, things to do. Absolutely. I'd like to go back one month further um, to our February podcast, where we talked to three incredible conservation heroes of the U.S. Great Lakes. So it feels very natural to keep with that theme with Mark Matson. Now, the conservation heroes from the lower and upper lakes that we talked to all shared that big ideas and big goals to protect and conserve the Great Lakes natural resources can start with one small step, one person, or one small group. It obviously takes dedication and a lot of work, but the level of success to establish preservation areas in relatively few years was really astounding. Tyler, I, I felt that, I know we talked about it the last podcast, but I felt that the lessons they shared could be applied anywhere there is a di- desire to make a difference. No doubt. I couldn't agree more. I mean, all around the American shoreline, it's the same story. It's about people connecting with their native landscape, their uh, hometowns, their environment that they live in, and treasuring it and preserving it. Yeah, I, I, I had hoped from that podcast that people would feel inspired um, and empowered. Uh, and our guests did such a great job of sharing um, really, they started with one small step and did amazing things. And I know we're going to hear similarly from Mark today. This episode of North Coast Chronicles is sponsored by the Hamilton Oshawa Port Authority. As a growing integrated port network, the Hamilton Oshawa Port Authority, or HOPA Ports, offers innovative port and marine assets on the Great Lakes, developing multimodal spaces to support Ontario's industry and facilitate trade by investing in high quality infrastructure and prioritizing sustainability. Opal Ports is building prosperous working waterfronts across southern Ontario in Hamilton, Oshawa, and Niagara. For more information, go to hopaports.ca. Now, with our previous discussions around the lakes from Lake Erie to Superior, and even a really fun conversation with folks from the Welland Canal, it was clearly time to head eastward to the Lake of Shining Waters and Lake Ontario. Each great lake is closely tied to the adjoining land. So before we talk more specifically about Lake Ontario, I'll shamelessly quote some online source of information about the Ontario region. Now, the first French and British settlers arrived in Canada in 1600. After the Seven Years' War, which was in the late 1700s, most of the land in Canada belonged to the British. The British called this entire area the province of Quebec, which included Quebec and Ontario and part of the United States. And after the American Revolution, which was a little bit after that, many American colonists who were loyal to Britain moved to Ontario. They were known as United Empire Loyalists. Many Iroquois also moved to Upper Canada from northern New York State. In 1791, and not long after the United States was a newly born country, the British enacted the Constitutional Act, which split Quebec into two parts. Ontario was upstream of the St. Lawrence River, so it became kind of an upper Canada, and Quebec became lower Canada. Throughout the 19th century, many immigrant groups moved to the upper Canada, including Germans, Scots, and Mennonites. By 1830, the population of Canada was about 235,000, and Toronto became the first city in Ontario in 1834. In 1867, Ontario and Quebec became separate provinces. And Ontario is Canada's second largest province, covering more than 400,000 square miles or 1 million square kilometers. It's an area larger than France and Spain combined. And to more fully understand the geography of the region, Ontario is bounded by Quebec to the east, Manitoba to the west, 
Hudson Bay and James Bay to the north, and the St. Lawrence River and the Great Lakes to the south. Ontario has many lakes, rivers, and streams, which certainly played a central role in the province's history and development. And just like all major waterways around the world, for Aboriginal peoples and the earlier European settlers, the lakes and rivers of Ontario were a means of transportation and a source for food. The location and geography of waterways determine the pattern of settlement, as well as the patterns of industrialization, including around Lake Ontario. Now, Mark Matson, as we noticed, is from um, uh, Lake Ontario Waterkeepers, and he's here to teach us about the great, great lake to the east. So, Mark, uh, I understand that you are yet another guest on North Coast Chronicles calling from an island. Is it an island in the Great Lakes? Yes. Um, greetings, um, Helen, and to all your listeners. I'm on Wolf Island, which is right at the end of the Great Lakes where the St. Lawrence River starts. So all the water from the entire Great Lakes goes by my little island, Wolf Island, um, which is, if you think of Kingston, Ontario, and on the American New York side, it's a little town of Cape Vincent. So it's up near the Thousand Islands, but it's the first one. I know Cape Vincent well. I used to work for the St. Lawrence Seaway Development Corporation, and I think they had a house there um, that they used at one time, and um, I don't think they have it anymore, but believe it or not, they would rent it out to the people that worked with them, and um, it was it's just really beautiful up there. Um, and so if I throw out a bottle with a message in it from um, our cottage in Lake Ontario, you just have to keep a, a, a net out there and wait for it, I guess. Yeah, <laughs> totally. No, I, I, I think sometimes people... And, you know, in Kingston, and I've done a lot of work here. I've been working on Lake Ontario for 30 years um, as an environmental lawyer and an activist. But um, I think a lot of people forget just, um, you know, at the end, at Kingston, it gets forgotten a little bit. It's like the end of the Great Lakes. <laughs> and it doesn't get talked about as much, or Lake Ontario. But they're all, as you know, they're all connected to this great, the greatest freshwater estuary in the world, the Great Lakes. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, it, it's an extraordinary resource. Now, I contacted you through Lake Ontario Waterkeepers, um, um, and I love your byline, which is, you know, swimmable, drinkable, fishable future. I think that's, I love that. It's very concise, but it's clearly a byline that's associated with a program called Swim, Drink, Fish, under which the Waterkeepers is a long-running initiative. So what is Swim, Drink, Fish? And you're the president? Yeah, so... Swimming Fish is our name. It used to be like Ontario Waterkeeper when we started in 2001. It ultimately morphed into Swim Drink Fish because um, we were working beyond um, just Lake Ontario and the Great Lakes. In fact, we were working nationally across Canada and, and overseeing some organizations. But the name Swim Drink Fish really has its roots in the Great Lakes Water Quality Agreement, which we're celebrating 50 years of this year, um, where there was a combination of science and legal and public health. Um, they came together to truly tr try to define the gold standard of environmental protection and law. Um, and swimmable, drinkable, fishable water um, was what they was the objective of the Great Lakes Water Quality Agreement. And we know under the Clean Water Act in the U.S. it was swimmable, fishable, and they didn't have drinkable because obviously a lot of the waters in the U.S., especially salt waters and the ocean waters in Canada, they were um, not drinkable. So they didn't put that in there on the Clean Water Act. But on the Great Lakes. It's all um, it, it it's all um, fresh water. It's all drinkable water. So swimmable, drinkable, fishable water really suits. And then the reason we called it swim drink fish is because as an environmental lawyer, I was you know using the law to try to get to swimmable, drinkable, fishable water. But um, a lot of the waterfronts and a lot of the areas I went, and a lot of the communities I visited had signs: "Don't drink 
don't fish, don't, don't swim in these waters. And um, I started thinking about it and thought, you know, these signs were put up to protect people on the Great Lakes from issues, maybe old ones or pollution issues. But really, they were pushing people away from the Great Lakes. Generations were pushed away, thought the Great Lakes were dirty, thought the Great Lakes weren't safe for taking their family and swimming. You know, got the tagline, the Rust Belt. Here in Canada, people, you know, they didn't they didn't even know they were drinking from the Great Lakes in Toronto. I know I do. For the last 30 years, I've asked, where's Toronto's drinking water come from? And most people start thinking about, you know, the moraine or up north. <laughs> you know, they would never think it came from the lake that they wouldn't swim in. And so I really focused on those signs and recognized that there were pollution problems in the area that, you know, people were being protected from. So I started recognizing that it was important to get people to change those adjectives into verbs, to, you know, really enjoy and appreciate that connection to the Great Lakes that comes from recreation, swimmable water, and the, the public health rules and regs that go into that to keep you safe and keep sewage from, you know, untreated sewage from being in the water. And then drinking water, keeping out the contaminants, long-term contaminants, you know, most of the time it meant in being treated, um, but keeping nuclear waste, for example, and plastics out, which can last for years and years and years. And then, of course, fishable water, which is the benthic community, the food chain. And so much of the sediments from the old, you know, from the dirty old days, 60s and 70s, you know, that can stay in the food chain for a long time and ultimately result in fish consumption restrictions. So, our objective is to have swimmable, drinkable, fishable water for everyone, and that's why I really like changing the name of the organization to Swim, Drink, Fish. Uh, I really like that, it, and and because it is very clear and concise, but it's also universal. So I did take the liberty of looking at you know your shop and some of the swag that you sell, but <clears throat> you know your logos with a symbol for swimming, for drinking, and fishing is universal, and it applies everywhere there's water. And I think perhaps we should all take that on um, because um, I, you know, if anybody wearing that hat, I'd get it right away what they're thinking and what they're talking about. Now, your bio states, and you said this, that you were an, attorney, an environmental attorney um, practicing law, right? But after about 10 years, you kind of walked away. I don't know if that's entirely true, but you know, what kind of law were you practicing specifically for environmental? And like, did you have an epiphany one day or just confronted with a fork in the road and you, you took it? And epiphany is an interesting way of putting it. Maybe that was a bit of it. Um, I started, you know, I, I grew, grew up a lot in Wolf Island, loved it here. So I wanted to go to university here at Queens. I went to Queens and then I went to law school in Windsor, right across from Detroit, also by the water, loved it. And, um, you know, just economics. I didn't come up from a family with a lot of money. There were grants. So I, you know, really wanted to go work for the big law firms and, and uh, pay off my debts, which I did. And I went and I did corporate, but I just didn't feel like it was my thing. Um, I always had this real sense about being a litigator, um, a civil justice lawyer. So I moved back to Kingston and started a small practice with a, um, a, an older, very distinguished litigator who had worked for the Ministry of Environment as a prosecutor. And we started a practice um, here in Kingston. And within six months, I was back in Toronto representing environmental groups. Um, but the epiphany was really, you know, just in the late, 1990s, um, I was volunteering more than getting paid to work on environmental issues. I, I could not do it. I wanted to do it pro bono. And I, and a lot of the cutbacks the government were taking place across the, the Great Lakes. So there was, there was a lack of enforcement of environmental law. And so I wanted to give meaning and force to environmental law, just like we did with civil rights and other rights that, you know, really we now take for granted. But they weren't being enforced. So, um, an epiphany, I sort of, 
I just I heard about the Waterkeeper Alliance. I heard about these lawyers and um, other people stepping up um, and working full time to represent their watershed. And so um, I had been in touch with, um, I think it was Murray Fisher there, and I met a lot of the waterkeepers across the U.S. And uh, I just, yeah, I decided to give up my law practice keep my license, but dedicate my life full time to giving meaning and force to environmental laws and, and protections and public health protections. And so that's what I did. And I started by prosecuting polluters. You can do that in Canada and doing all this legal work. But I realized I was giving way too much emphasis to the force of the law. And, and there weren't enough people who were connected to the water that, um, you know, that, that just giving force to the laws was enough. I needed to build a movement of people who cared about those laws, who cared deeply about their beaches and going swimming and their fisheries and their um, and their drinking water. And so I started focusing on ways to connect people to the Great Lakes. Um, and we did that through many different ways. Um, the swim guide, which we started on Lake Ontario in Toronto, and it's now right across the U.S. I think we have uh, 8,000 beaches where we update water quality. It's a free app. Um, website, theswimguide.org. You can look up your place and, you know, hundreds and hundreds of content providers to that app because they're out there sampling the water and sharing the data as, as regularly as they can. So the people who live in that community have an idea of how the bacteria is changing in the water because it is like the weather really changes all the time. So we, we created Swim Guide. Then we also created the Great Lakes Guide, which links people to paths and hiking paths and different stories and tries to entice people to go down to the water's edge and create their own connection. And we started working with artists, um, poets, um, musicians, painters, photographers, and really I always see them as a little bit ahead of everyone else. They're a little bit prophetic and they're, you know, they were seeing things on the Great Lakes that I really, um, you know, was inspired by, um, particularly some of the, you know, I can name them, the Bertinskis and the Gord Downies there in Canada, many of them in the U.S., but who, who, you know, talked about our places and took pride in it and, you know, named their songs after places on the Great Lakes, um, like Gordon Lightfoot would have won. You might not remember that song from the 70s, but um, the Edmund Fitzgerald. But those stories really meant a lot to people, and that helped me get people to the water's edge, connect them to Lake Ontario and, you know, listen to shows like your own and really start to learn about the history and the culture around um, the lakes and learn to love it. And I found as a lawyer, when people, you know, love something um, and particularly as an environmental lawyer, when people just, they fall in love with their water and their community. Um, they're willing to stand up and protect it. And we need that. That's the meaning behind the force of environmental health and law and protections. Well, thank you. I mean, thank you. There, you no know, word can express really um, the sacrifices you've made, the conscious choices you made. You wouldn't call them sacrifices, I'm sure, but um, you made a conscious choice to, to walk a different path. I, I'll tell you, it's the greatest. It's really, it, yeah, I just want to say, I mean, I'm just so privileged to be able to represent the Great Lakes. It really is a, it's something that I don't need any thanks for. And I, I, I you know, in the sacrifice, I just, people who made the sacrifices, the people I work with, the volunteers. And I, um, I just love being the lawyer for the links. Well, uh, our conservation heroes, and you are definitely one of them that we talked to uh, two months ago, that there was a theme, you know, that there was a theme that every one of them, you know, dismissed, you know, their work and said it really is about the volunteers. And you get that. Well, frankly, I think um, 
two out of the three were volunteers. And I think about their time and hours, untold hours, but labor of love um, for the work that they do. Now, I'm, I am familiar with Riverkeeper organizations and who tend to have a fairly limited size of area to handle. But Lake Ontario, and from what you're talking about, man, it's big. So it's a lot of surface area. How do you manage observing, managing, Im- implementing programs for resource with such a large surface area, large geography? Mm-hmm. No, it's a really good question. And I think um, it's something that I learned is that when I first started, um, I thought maybe I'd just be the Toronto Harbor Keeper. Um, but it was hard um, to really build the base and the movement to support a full-time environmental organization. Um, so we expanded to the Great Lakes. That helped. We were working in Hamilton, Ontario, Toronto, Kingston, St. Catharines, Niagara Falls. And I was doing a lot of work on the U.S. side, too, in Rochester. Now there's um, in Buffalo, there's the Buffalo Niagara Riverkeeper there. It started up a few years after us. That was great. I know they saved the river in Clayton on the U.S. side, but it was just, you know, as a lake, um, you needed to take that big viewpoint or you, you know, where you weren't able to really get to the provincial or state, much less the federal government sort of policymakers or um, regulators to get attention to your issues. So we did grow. Um, and the way we've sustained it is, is just by building these tools. I mean, Swim Guide, you know, when I started, it was 67 beaches on Lake Ontario. And so that was a big deal for us to plot them all out on a map, allow people to see where they are, you know, give a history of each beach and its name and who looks after it. And then we started getting the water quality data and telling you whether or not you could swim there that day or not. Well, now there's 181 beaches on Lake Ontario, and I know we have over 2,000, I think, on the Great Lakes. It's You start building that out and you start meeting the people and learning about the beaches and the landfills and the waste and where the sewage treatment plants are, where the pipes are. And you don't have to do it all yourself at that point. All of a sudden, you have this real incredible community of people who, um, you know, who are all doing a little bit. But if you're able to, to, to take that, you know, whether it's community science or the data they're collecting or collect, connect them on litter days, whatever, um, you can really build an incredible community. And that's what we've done on Lake Ontario. So it's, there's no way you can do it yourself. I can't, you know, I could probably do one case if I focused on just myself, but by, building a team and building these digital platforms, this, you know, technology made it possible where we're able to um, input our data through open data and really put it into, uh, you know, these, these platforms that answer specific questions like, can I go swimming and where, Um, you know, there's lots of space for everybody to participate in that and, and put their data in it. So things like swim guide and great lakes guide make, make it much easier for us to, to work across such a huge water body. I don't know if that makes sense, but that's how we've sort of done it. Well, it does. And, and I ask the question because it can feel monumentous. And for folks who want to make a difference, think, but it's just so much. And of course, you do have to start with one step. You have to want start with one project. And we learned from our other folks that that's what happened. There was one project and then you go to the next one. And so what we also learned from them is that I, was, I think Tyler and I were both just astounded by the amount of money they actually were able to raise um, to, you know, because people had a love of the land and a love of the water. And that's no different with you guys. So you've done really well in the department to raise funds. And tell me, tell me how that works for you, where you're getting your funds. And do you have like, um, how do you decide where you're going to direct those funds and how? Those are all great questions. Um, 
So there's two types of funding. One is restricted and one is unrestricted funding. And restricted funding is sort of the foundation grants and government grants where you apply to do a certain program and your organization, you know, puts that into operation what they were funded for by the government or the foundations. I um, That isn't how we built our organization originally, even though we do take that sort of funding now. Um, I know, you know, our group oversaw four water monitoring, community-based water monitoring hubs the last four years. Um, two with Indigenous communities and um, really training them on how to take water quality um, data. And, um, you know, we had little labs in their communities and then how to share that data with the public in a meaningful way so that it makes a difference. So that was a government grant. But traditionally, I've always gone after the unrestricted money because that gave us the freedom to invest in the areas where I felt were most needed. And for me, what's most needed is, you know, I feel like environmental groups have you know, it's building the community, sharing the tools for free, giving the communities the tools they need to share so that they can make a bigger impact. So like Swim Guy, that's the, you know, for me, the Swim Guy was the gold standard where I learned we can do this. We can get, we can report on water quality and, you know, 2,000 different places on the Great Lakes every day. You can. You build the community and it's a simple, you know, risk assessment and it's public health data and, you know, they define how many quality forming units of E. coli per 100 milliliters um, in the water until you let people know there's a red warning or yellow warnings is a special circumstance or green is go ahead and go swimming. And and that data really was so important to what we were trying to do, but nobody wanted to fund it. They thought it was a crazy, you know, some sort of crazy idea. So we had to go after unrestricted money. Now, how do you get unrestricted money? You know, people who make donations and say, here's the money, do with it what you want. But that's very small. So for what we did is we 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 started working with the um, with the artists, and you know it's hard. People think musicians you don't do a concert and raise money for your group. It's, the musicians can't raise that much because it's small money and a big event. But the but the painters, um, the photographers, um, they just started volunteering and joining and becoming ambassadors of our organization, and started really giving us really significant pieces of their work. Um, to share with our our supporters and our membership, and that you know over the last ten years has probably raised us over four million dollars. Um, we do a yearly event. The artists come, we curate the show, and um, and it's called Artists for Water. Uh, we have our event in two weeks, and that money makes all the difference to the organization. So you know three hundred or four hundred thousands of dollars every year that we can invest in new tools and in the areas that we really want to build. Um, you know, something different that makes it, you know, easier for people to protect the water. And that's what we've been doing. And, and I, I constantly, you know, when people raise money or are raising money for an organization, I constantly, you know, encourage them to keep an eye on their restricted grants versus their unrestricted. Because so many of the environmentalists who run these groups are the ones who know most their best where to put the money locally. But the foundations want it spent in other ways. They rightfully so. They have their other their priorities and their own strategic plans. So, but it's really important that the local people have that freedom and that um, you know that ability to really um, selectively put money where they need it, to, where they can connect more people to the Great Lakes in meaningful ways. Um, you know, that's what we that's how we try to do. So, but there is the, re- the restricted funds that we all know about, and that's asking. You know, foundations and governments um, are also very much want to support groups if they if they're carrying out the objectives that those institutions want to meet. Well, it's it's a big leap, I think, from 
um, wanting to get money to preserve something, but also taking funds to perform um, a a um, uh, um, an action like water quality. Um, folks who tend to volunteer to try to preserve an area, conserve an area, are you know are, those organizations don't tend to think of themselves as the nonprofit that can also do water quality assessments. So that was a big leap, I think. Um, it, to me, it sounds like a big leap. And um, and then pulling together all the people, I could see you getting volunteers of people who are willing to go down and take water samples and send them in or, you know, use kits to test them and give you the results. But um, it's, to me, uh, it, I think it's very ambitious, but it is a way to get the bigger grants too, I suspect. Yeah. It, it's, well, you know, one of the grants, one of my, I'd say one of the greatest Projects I've ever worked on with the communities in Kingston, Ontario, where right across from Wolf Island, where we grew up, and they had long history of untreated sewage and you know condoms and tampon applicators and needles would float up in the Thousand Islands on the shore. They were being discharged from the major city and not being filtered out or treated or even collected. And so we brought, you know, we really got on the city over the sewage issue, and, and eventually the, the, the city just stopped fighting it and said, you're right. Like, and they started investing heavy in, in, in separating the flows, um, investing in their sewage treatment. And now the city of Kingston has this incredible waterfront where there's urban swimming opportunities. And um, we convinced one of the major foundations who had invested in conservation for many years to invest in um, access, access in, in downtown Kingston. And so um, they created this incredible swimming pier um, in downtown Kingston, which now gets around 200,000 people a year. It's, a, it's beautifully be built by an architect. The water's now clean. You can jump off it into 20 feet of water, or you can go in the shallow water and stay with your family. It's protected. It was built like by this architect who just knew everything everybody wanted to have on the water, but without making it look goofy. And it is such a beautiful place. And I, you know, for the foundation, they were like, why would we? build a swimming pier and i said because swimmable water is probably the gateway to drinkable fishable water in almost every community um you know and that this is you know the the, the record the loss of recreation in this community is a loss of a generation of people who don't understand how beautiful this lake is and if we can just get them to jump off this dock into the water on a more regular basis you know they don't have cottages and they're not going away this is their this is their spot and this is and they're privileged to have it but you know we can't keep it clean enough to swimming how we expect to be able to drink out of it or eat the fish out of it and so that swimming pier has become a beacon along the great along lake ontario for hamilton and toronto and these cities that traditionally never thought about you know making that connection recreational connection in urban centers and and it's it's driving hundreds of millions if not billions of dollars of investment um to treat sewage to separate sewage and stormwater and it really just came down to me convincing a, found, a foundation, you know, the importance of swimmable water and and swimmers. And that, you know, when I look at a waterfront, you know, some people look and see the fir trees and look up them and see a bald eagle now. And they just are thrilled with pride. And I am, too, that they've come back on the Great Lakes and they're everywhere. But for me, the real indicator for me of a healthy community is when I look at their water's edge and their shoreline and and. And if there's no one in the water, that worries me. And if I see lots of people going to the water, swimming and surfing and diving, I I, I get the sense that this is a, you know, we've made huge progress um, on the Great Lakes and that people are coming back just like um, nature is. Well, you, you make it very personal for people. 
right? You make it, um, it is, it is personal, of course, but you make it, um, you, you tied how personal and important it was. Um, and like you said, if you get one person in there, it starts happening, it becomes, um, you know, kind of this, um, uh, rolling snowball. And I, I pretty excited. So Tyler, I have to make a note here that I didn't think we were going to be talking about swimming beaches, but I'm writing down here that I think that would be a really great future podcast, like the best beaches of the Great Lakes, right? People always talk about the best beaches in Florida, the best beaches in the Caribbean. We got to do it. That's a great idea. Yeah. I think we got to talk about best beaches in the Great Lakes. And um, I think we have a source for um, a list already. So uh, I think we're rocking that one already. Yeah. So I'd, lo- I'd love to do that just but I mainly also because I want to make the point that swimmable water should be a an indicator of swimmable drinkable water. I think that's so important. Yeah, tie in that swimmable drinkable fishable. Um so I come from Lake Erie where we consider the trifecta of fishing to be walleye, perch and pike. Tell us uh, a bit about the biodiversity of Lake Ontario. Well, we also have that. I know Lake Erie, Lake Erie really well, but Lake Erie is so full of you know, so many more fish, particularly because it's a little, it's a lot shallower. Lake Ontario is a very deep lake in the middle. So we get a lot of the salmon and the lake trout and stuff, but in the rivers and the shallower area, we have the walleye, the pike, the smallmouth bass, um, largemouth bass. Um, but what Lake Ontario was really known for that distinguished it from the other great lakes was the American eel. Um, I think 40% of the biomass of Lake Ontario was, you know, a couple hundred years ago and within the indigenous community when they were here, it was 40% of it was the American eel. And I don't know if you know, the American eel is born out in the Sargossi Sea. It's the opposite of salmon. It's born in the ocean it lives in the lakes and then it goes back to the ocean to lay its eggs again. And Lake Ontario, they were all female. So they were female and they were some of the largest American eel because you know, the Great Lake Ontario is such a huge lake and they live here 20, 25 years before they go back to the sea. And, you know, there are stories about Niagara Falls because that's what separates Lake Ontario, obviously, from the rest of the Great Lakes. But the American eel used to crawl on each other and go up 40 feet high up the falls trying to get into the other lakes, but never could make it up into the other lakes. Um, and the American eel, of course, is different from the lamprey, which people, you know, that suck onto the fish and invasive species and did such damage to, to Lake Ontario. But the American eel didn't. And now the American eel is down to about 1% of where it was just in the last 30 years. So I grew up here. When I grew up in Wolf Island, American eel were everywhere. It's because the seaway wasn't built to 58 and they stayed for 20, 25 years. So in the late 60s, 70s, we didn't really see what was going on. But, you know, 25, 30 years down the road, you know, they then realized, oh, the American eel are having a hard time getting back to the ocean because they get chopped up (laughs) through the turbines going back and get nicked, et cetera. Um, and it's a long thousand mile journey for them. So it was a very, um, you know, it's a, it's a loss of the American eel. And yet, you know, I think it's one of the most iconic fish, the, the eel in the world. Um, indigenous communities relied on it for protein because it's easy to transport and they can live in buckets. It was an amazing food, for, you know, to travel with. Um, I think all over the world to this day, I think the, I think the eel is still like the third most expensive fish on the Japanese fish market for eating. You know, they eat it in Finland, Australia, New Zealand, but we had a very specific type and that was the Lake Ontario American eel. And I, I just, I'd love to see the American eel come back to Lake Ontario. Other, otherwise, you know, we're, all, we're on the big flyways, the birds, the ducks, just like Lake Erie, very similar. Um, to see those, you know, in the fall and, and the spring right now, to see them moving in and out and, um, the deep lake, what else is different? I mean, there's so much, 
similar about all the Great Lakes more than what's different. I think what's different too about Lake Ontario though is that it has 9 million people that rely on Lake Ontario for drinking water. Um, that's a huge number of people who get their drinking water from one lake. Um, the biggest city in Canada, of course, is on Lake Ontario with Toronto and Hamilton's the fifth biggest. So we share two of the biggest cities in Canada right on Lake Ontario. And, um, and I think I've already said this, but it's very deep, <laughs> um, which is why, you know, it, it, it allows for, uh, it's a very co- it's a colder water. I would say like swimming in Lake Ontario, you always feel a lot colder than swimming in Lake Erie. Yeah, I heard. I understand that there. That um, while uh, there's less surface area on Ontario than Erie, there's a lot more volume of water because it is so deep. People sometimes are really shocked by that when they look at those maps that show the depth of the Great Lakes, and you see Lake Erie. It looks more like a river up there, and then you see Superior in Ontario. How deep? I think it gets up to 800 feet deep in Lake Ontario at the um, southeastern end. It, it does feel very surprising, especially because I think of, we know Superior is very deep, right? And you think that, oh, they just get shallow as they go south, and then you hit Ontario. Um, and it's obviously about all the, the glaciers and the escarpment and just f- inc- incredible. So in um, as a teaser at the end of our last podcast, I asked the question, you know, why doesn't Lake Ontario freeze? So Mark, is it as simple as uh, it's deep? Why doesn't Lake Ontario freeze over? Very eastern end, like from Maine Duck Island and down into the Kingston area, that all freezes. But um, when you get into the deeper water, anything deeper than 40 feet, I believe, the water in the lake stays pretty much the same. And that's it's 55 degrees Fahrenheit. Um, and you guys have been Fahrenheit. So fifty around 55 degrees Fahrenheit. So the lake... You can, it, it, in some ways, it stays warm and it stays cold. <laughs> it's both, depending. And so, like the city of Toronto, for example, will take the water from Lake Ontario at 200 feet deep, and they will use it for cooling in the summer and heating in the winter. Believe it or not. So the reason it doesn't freeze is because it has all this this depth, this warm water down below, um, that will have a thermal climb where it flips. You know, you see the, the mist when the lake flips. It's like the cold water comes to the top and the warm water sinks or the opposite. And it just, it never, I guess, it'll never get, it doesn't get cold enough to freeze. It's too deep. It just, that warmer water below just keeps the, the big open waters of Toronto and stuff where it's very deep. Um, it keeps it warm enough not to freeze. Even though, I guess you're not doing any ice fishing around Wolf Island. Oh, no, it all freezes around Wolf Island. Oh, okay. Our kid, we drive from Wolf Island to Kingston. It, that's what I mean. It gets shallower. Once it gets to Mainfield Island, um, the Blue Island, it, it gets a lot shallower here, so it freezes like Lake Erie. So, so you know, you're heading out you're heading out to, on the ice, I guess, to get, to get over to Kingston. Yeah, and once you get out onto the lake, though, once you get out, like in Toronto, once you're out in the big lake, it doesn't freeze. But when you get in the shallow areas or the, you know, or the Thousand Islands, it freezes right across in the Thousand Islands. Even with the current, it freezes here completely. Hey, you know, I'm, I wondered, is there any saltwater intrusion from Lake, um, from St. Lawrence River that goes into Lake Ontario? No, it, it comes as far as Quebec City. But I know last summer, the summer before, a, a, a whale came all the way into Montreal. Um, it died, of course. I think it was much too fresh. It probably was sick. But um, Quebec City is about where you still have the sesh, or the, not the sesh, the, um, the estuarial water, um, brackish with salt and fresh. Um, so it doesn't get this far, not towards the Thousand Islands. It's, it's all fresh. 
So you mentioned the sea lamprey, uh, which for which we're familiar. Those of us in the Great Lakes understand when they kind of built the the St. Lawrence Seaway uh, for shipping. You know, the 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 sea lamprey came in. So um, yeah, how has um, uh, we haven't really talked about invasives much uh, in the Great Lakes. Certainly, have talked about it when we talked about Superior, and people do bring it up. But what is the state of um, where St. Lake Ontario is there's a lot of ships that just don't go beyond Lake Ontario because um, frankly it's just not worth it financially you know they do their business and turn around and get out so what is the the um, invasive situation in Lake Ontario well you know I'm 60 years old so in my lifetime things have changed so much and almost all the driver for that was the invasive species particularly of course the zebra mussels and the quagga mussels um, they really changed the entire lake um, by filtering out the phosphorus and the, you know, and, and, and really some people call it cleaning the water, cleansing the water. Um, they really changed the entire waterfront. I mean, I'm looking out in front of a bay that I grew up on where we, there was commercial fishermen here back in the 60s and 70s, and it was very much a, a, a muddy, um, sort of swampy um, bay. Um, now I'm looking out at it and I can see the rocks 20 feet deep below and the sandbars and it's so clear. So there's a lot of, it's changed. That's changed the nature of the fisheries. The fish have gone deeper. Um, the cormorants have come. <laughs> the water's so much clearer so the cormorants can fish much easier here. So the fish are going deeper to stay away from the cormorants. And it's just the cycle. It just changes. Um, it just changed so much um, in the last, I guess the zebra mussel started in the 90s. Other invasive species, you know, we're always the purple, the plants, the purple loose strife, the, there's all these different weeds. Um, I know in the water, there's the spiny flea now, which the fishermen talk about a lot, which is sort of like, uh, like one of those, it, it sort of floats near the surface, but has a long tentacle that goes deep. So your fishing line catches it. So they're all still here. I still feel like there needs to be a stronger push to keep the sea ships on in the sea and when you come to the Great Lakes, um, you know, I've, you probably know more about this than I do, but, you know, it'd be great if they weren't doing cargo shipping or uh, cargo sweeping and, and or discharging ballots, which I don't think they do anymore. But, you know, those sort of things to protect the integrity of the Great Lakes, it might mean we have to ensure that, um, you know, those those ships that are coming in from other waters, you know, are really a little bit more per- cautious about not discharging into these waters because they do... It can just flip the entire <laughs> ecosystem with just one species coming in, like the quagga and the zebra mussel. The changes, like, it's unbelievable. Well, you know, ballast water exchange was clearly a practice, but you no, know, you know, I just gonna say that you know, ballast water exchange is clearly a required practice to come into the Great Lakes. But you know, we and I know that there's still ballast water technologies going out there to treat it, but it's not something we talk about all the time, but it hasn't gone away. And I, I have been thinking about that lately. Um, I mean, I, I work in Washington. I did a lot of Great Lakes stuff. So, and obviously, as you know, I've worked for shipping. So um, there'd been lots and lots of conversations about ballast water treatment technologies. I'm just not sure that I'm hearing much about it. It hasn't gone away and it's probably still technologies are being developed. But it is interesting that it, it, for some reason it's just not talked about as if it's been solved. And yeah. clearly it has not. It's just an observation. Unfortunately, I think my experience is there's a lot of that in the Great Lakes. A lot of the issues haven't gone away, but they've been forgotten or ignored because there's other issues and other urgencies. 
um, you know, particularly, you know, and, and for good reason, climate change, the impacts, um, plastics, pharmaceuticals, you know, these things are the big, this is what most foundations want us to work on. And I'm still working on sewage and toxic um, sediments and harbors. And it's like, oh, that was 30 years ago. And I'm, you know, but those legacy weights are still here. They haven't gone away. It's just, it's, you know, and ballast water is another great example of that. I think navigation, there's such an opportunity to expand and modernize the navigation on the Great Lakes and use it in a healthy and environmental way. But, you know, so often, um, you know, people just, it, it, it just was the cheapest way to do it. It costs money to do all that other stuff. Um, but I really hope that it's the respect for the Great Lakes. Once we get people no longer think of it as a rust belt but ready, or, or like a place where you don't swim, but that this is a very, this is 90% of the U.S. surface freshwater, the greatest freshwater ecosystem in the world. We're in the U.N. decade of ecosystems which, in order to meet sustainable development goals. I mean, this is, this is our chance to really um, you know, change the attitude towards the Great Lakes and remember that it really is the center um, for so much of the economy and, and Senate, well, for Canada, and that it's our 60% of Canadians live in the Great Lakes watershed. So it's so important. It's more important than the Rockies, and yet the Rockies get much more respect. Rocky Mountains, that is. I mean, this is our Rocky Mountains. And I, you know, I just think the idea that there would be ships just littering basically is just, no, we all know we shouldn't litter, and neither should they. And the, but the implications of the ships doing it um, are so much more consequential than it is of just an individual. Let me just say, if 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 they are littering, they're doing it illegally. So I just want to make that clear. No, I know. I I used to try and enforce those laws, but I feel like so many of them they're just not being enforced. That you have to give them meaning, and then government and politicians will enforce them. Well, it's surprising to hear that about the Great Lakes, to be perfectly honest, and um, um, because the the, uh, the the penalties are just so strong, and uh, certainly the U.S. Just, just Justice Department has very strong feelings about that. So I am surprised to hear that uh, that you have a sense that the um, ships coming into the Great Lakes are littering. That of all the things to talk about, but but certainly going to go and do a little homework on that myself. They call it cargo sweeping in Canada. It means that they, you know, after they've dropped off the load, they can go into the middle of the lake and they can sweep out and, and rinse out the cargo before they go out. And so for me, I just called that littering, but really cargo sweeping. And it is illegal in Canada as well, but there's never been a charge and everyone does it. <laughs> well, well, that's so interesting. So I, try, I really go after them for that, but you know, it's section 38 of the federal fisheries act. Um, it's, you know, it's a million dollar a day fine and six months in jail. Uh, yeah, it is not minor. And uh, on the U.S. side, there are very small areas in which you can sweep your cargo fines. Those, these are just like what's at the bottom of the hatch and um, things kind of fall off and they're called cargo fines. And um, it is very restrictive. There's no doubt about it. And there's very specific areas you can do it. Although I, I think a lot of states are leaning towards trying to eliminate that as well. Yeah. But um, so I read that Ontario um, is known is 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 leads uh, leads Canada for producing metals. How has that impacted the manufacturing in the area and the lake? Well, the, our steel center is in Hamilton, Hamilton Harbor. Hamilton Harbor at one point I think produced over twenty five percent of the the fisheries on Lake Ontario. It's like a paradise in there. There are thirteen rivers that come through Hamilton, but the steel industry really you know, grew. And I think at one point there were 25,000 people working in the steel industry in Hamilton and it left a legacy of coal tar on the harbor floor. Um, they've been cleaning a lot of it up more recently. The Randall Reef was a, you know, $300 million project to contain it in a pier. 
but there's still work to go and it's it, it's it's um you know hamilton's very proud of their watershed now and really working towards restoration it's still a remedial action plan site um one of the ones identified by the ijc but that's our steel industry but we have a huge nuclear industry as well we have um um, 16 reactors, eight at Pickering and eight at Darlington. We have in Port Hope, the plant that makes the fuel for all the Kandu reactors around the world. It's called Cameco. Um, and we have a $2 billion cleanup going on in Port Hope right now for the legacy of the last 60 years. And, you know, all that, all that spent fuel rods, they're going to have to um, look after it for the next few hundred years. They don't know where to move it to. They're looking at medium and low level, um, you know, sites for those, um, for the other ways. And it's a, you know, why Lake Ontario? How did it get the nuclear plants? Well, because of the cold water. Um, because of that, 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 that 55 degree Fahrenheit water, um, you know, they were able to, and the deep water, they were really able to, it's good for manufacturing and, and cooling, um, and using it as cooling, once through cooling. And then we don't have what you guys have in the States. Like you always see those big steam, those concrete steam. <laughs> Um, they're called once through cooling, um, uh, closed cycle cooling reactors. And you see those in Homer Simpson and stuff, the big, you know, circular ones. We don't have those in Canada because we just, we don't cool the water. We don't recycle it. We just send it straight through. So it comes into the plant and then goes straight out. And, uh, it's not great for fisheries either, but that's a big legacy for Lake Ontario. And that's something that the federal government and the U.S. government are thinking about where are we going to move all the, the fuel that we've created over the last 50 years. Um, and there's a big, there's, you know, a lot of talk about it here. And, um, but there's a lack, no, no one's really sure. There's no plan yet for what to do with it. I know there's another reactor up in Lake Huron. You might know it in Bruce Nuclear Reactor in Canada. It also has eight reactors. Um, and I think on the U.S. side in Canada, on Lake Ontario, there's the, there are the reactors at Oswego. Um, which are well-known on the U.S. side. So there's a big nuclear industry on Lake Ontario, despite the fact that it's drinking water. I'm surprised it isn't closed um, circuit. I, I don't know why. Just you know, something we don't even think about if we're not that familiar. It's a, it's illegal. You know, in the U.S., you don't have any of that, um, those types of, of um, cooling um, systems. Yours are all closed. You recycle. You have steam. You know, you cool, you cool the water and then you use it again. But it was just... Because of Lake Ontario and the, the, the way the Canadians built it, those old, those candor reactors, they do not have um, closed-loop close cycles. Um, so uh, climate change, how is Lake Ontario being impacted by climate change? There's so many places that you can point to where things have changed. And, you know, I, I assume it's climate. And, you know, again, I'm not a scientist, but, you know, so we have these storms, way more sewage is being discharged into the lake than ever before. I know a lot of people think sewage was dealt with, but it just, our systems aren't able to handle the intensity and the frequency of some of the rainstorms any longer. So Toronto, you know, we might have a one in 25 year storm now every year. And the one in 25 year storm overflows the entire sewage system in Toronto. And so they can't treat the water. So it all goes out and then Kingston and Hamilton. So climate is having an impact there. We're seeing a lot of that where the infrastructure isn't resilient enough to deal with the increased, um, you know, runoff from water um, and in sewage and stormwater. We're also seeing just changes and, you know, just, the wetlands and the birds and the habitat. I mean, this year was a very cold winter, so there was a lot of ice. But you know, there have been. We used to, 
I think I'd said to this in the 70s, we drive to Kingston from in 1985, people started going through more often, so they banned it. And since 1985, I'd say, you know, look at the maps, but there are many years where it never freezes at all. Um, and so nowadays, no one would think you could ever drive to Kingston on the ice. So it's just, you know, and I'm not that old, 60, uh, you know, just in my life to think that for 20 years we drove to Kingston and now you could never do it. Um, that's a pretty big change for one per in one person's lifetime of that, you know, seeing the weather change that fast and, and that um, dramatically. Um, so those are some of the things that climb in. I, I think water levels, Lake Ontario has a real water level issue because it's the only great lake that, that's controlled um, to some extent by the hydro dam at Cornwall, the Con Edison plant with Ontario Hydro. So they can control a little bit of the water levels, not all of it, but you know that, that won't affect the rest of the Great Lakes because obviously Niagara Falls, and you know you can't, will never, will never control the rest of the lakes. It's always coming over the falls, but Lake Ontario they control it. And I know there's been so much controversy on the lake about the water levels because climate has had such an impact on you know evaporation and off freezing or dry and wet times, and, and people look to the government to control the water level on Lake Ontario, and, and um, that's been. Like of all the environmental issues over the last five years, and I don't know if you've heard about it, Helen or Tyler, but the the water levels on Great Lakes have been huge. And I know they've been very big on the other lakes as well, but they're just different. You know what I mean? There's this one that here they feel like the government can control it. Yeah, well, on the U.S. side too, people have high water. Property owners don't like that. They complain, you know, how dare the Corps of Engineers make high water? Well, it isn't like that. It is certainly climate related and it isn't magic. So it, it uh, yeah, but it's interesting because uh, with Lake Erie being on the downbound, you know, on the downside, um, I'm, you know, I, maybe it's a good thing. It's a, can be a little bit controlled uh, because it's hard to keep it back um, and keep moving. And I do know that it's a controversial issue. We could do a whole nother show just in talking about, you know, water quantity, water movement. Um, you know, so that's, that's the, another another whole show, but do you consider, would you say that Lake Ontario is the most vulnerable of the Great Lakes? It, right now, I would say that's pretty much the consistent science is that Lake Ontario is, you know, maybe the most impacted or, um, you know, of all the Great Lakes. It makes logical sense. It's the end. It's the end. Everything goes into Lake Ontario um, from everywhere else. Um, but also just because 9 million people live here, it's very, you know, Buffalo, Rochester, Toronto, Kingston, um, St. Catharines. Um, these are big, big cities on the lake on both sides. And I think, I just think it's, it is the most impacted, but at the same time, I don't want to give anyone the idea that it isn't, it isn't one of the most beautiful places on earth. Um, you go out to the archipelago islands like the main duck and it, it really is on um, the shining waters and the sweet water seas and, you know, the, they're gorgeous. They're, they remind me of the Galapagos Islands. They're so beautiful, and the fish and the birds, and it just smells different. And the lake is still incredibly beautiful. Um, it's just so much of our nearshore habitat in our cities and in our industries. We, we've developed them, polluted them, filled in the marshes, um, put our toxic waste in, built our landfills on it. And, and I, it is threatened, but there's hope. And if we focus on, you know, on restoring just like, you know, the halt and prevent the waste and restoring them. I don't think there's a more beautiful place though on earth. So, Well, um, 
you have a fan in that one. You are talking, preaching to the choir on that one. I couldn't agree more. Uh, I talk about it all the time, and I'm constantly saying, well, it's another beautiful part of the Great Lakes, and, and there are a lot of beautiful parts. Um, I, 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 and I want to ask you before we close, you talked a lot about sewage and stormwater issues, which I find very interesting um, to have brought that up. It hasn't come up. It doesn't mean it's not an issue, but it hasn't come up. So uh, you said it's still a very real and current issue. Are there a couple of other areas that you think perhaps are still not, t- you know, getting the attention they need or the money they need? And what are the like the top three um, you think challenges right now in terms of conserving, preserving uh, Lake Ontario or the Great Lakes? Yeah, I I still go back to the landfills. Um, I don't think they ever went away, and they're also discharging and leaking. And some of the chemicals, like I know the one in Montreal Techno Park, I know hundreds of them around here. There's still PCBs in those old landfills, although we don't manufacture them. There's still, you know, there's a lot of different contaminants of concerns in our landfills. I'm very worried about that. 30 years ago, we all, you know, did the science and learned about them. But to this day, they're still there and discharging. And I know where they are, but they've been forgotten. And so a lot of the Great Lakes Water Quality Agreement and the IJC work was on um, stopping um those those chemicals of concern from getting in the Great Lakes. And I still, and, you know, now it would be nuclear where to join that and plastics and other things. But let's keep the waste out of the lakes, I think, number one. Number two, which people don't talk about enough. And yet, like, I don't know if you'd be surprised to know, but the city of Toronto discharges more untreated sewage into the lake today than it ever has. And people are, they, we thought that was a 60s issue. <laughs> no, as the city built, and they built all those condos in downtown Toronto, 60, 70, 80, 90, they're all built on combined sewer overflows. So when it rains, those systems are all overflow. And so the, the numbers, are, you know, and they're in the federal registry, they're in the provincial registry. There's no, there's no debate about that. That's just the numbers that are being discharged. So sewage is still a huge issue, which is why I'm still on swimmable water, because that's what keeps people, and that's what post places, and that's why people don't go into water, because they'll get sick. And the third big issue for me is governance. Um, this is the issue that I think the Great Lakes Water Quality, the 50th Agreement, really gives us an opportunity to reflect on. Eight provinces, or two provinces, eight states, two countries, and 149 Indigenous communities that have basically been kicked out of the, um, you know, the governance of the Great Lakes. This is a confusing. Um, we're not even talking about the cities and the mayors and the counties. And it's as we look forward to the next 50 years, I think the Great Lakes needs to think more as a as an environment, as an ecosystem, as opposed to all these different, um, you know, different stakeholder groups and politics and different leaders and, you know, whether it's Washington or Ottawa or Chicago or Toronto, it's so broken up. And I think we need to concentrate on our governance a little bit. I think we should have rules around nuclear waste, for example, that apply right across the whole Great Lakes. We shouldn't be borrowing the International Atomic Energy Agency rules, which apply 99% to salt water places where they don't drink the water. I think the Great Lakes needs to have its own um, rules, and they should apply. Um, you know, we should all agree to apply them across the Great Lakes because we share the Great Lakes. The birds share it with us, the fish, the food. This is like there's no way it can be divided politically. It's always going to be seen as a whole. And so those are going to... I think it's Niagara Falls, the Great Lakes Public Forum this year um, at the end of September. And those are the three things I want them to focus on is keeping the waste out of our water, um, treating um, sewage and stormwater, which are the number one pollutants in the Great Lakes, and um, 
and ensuring and embracing the idea that we have uh, a governance where all voices are heard and that we develop practices that are intended to you know protect the whole Great Lakes and not just um, certain areas and have all these different rules and regs wherever you go. You know, thank you. It's the governance thing. You kind of, I, you know, having studied the the, the water quality agreement, and I, you know, you kind of think that that whole that was the whole point of it is to address governance. So it's interesting that you still it, it feels as if we're still not looking at it as a whole ecosystem. So I I I, I applaud you and thank you and I, you know, um, you know, send hope that um, people are listening. I know that a lot of people have. Uh, feel impassioned about the Great Lakes, and I'm hoping that they all gather together at the end of September um, to look at it. Now, um, you, uh, before we close, I, I just want to let you get a shout out um, to your um, upcoming um, artists uh, event where there's going to be, um, uh, I guess, uh, some a way, a fundraiser. Could you talk a little bit about it? How can people find out about it? Sure. I think I mentioned it earlier, but um, the the um, Artist for Water, it's called, you can go to swimgreatfish.ca, that's the website, um, or Artist for Water. I'm, my Twitter handle is Waterkeeper Mark. I'm always sending out little things of the art, but it's May 5th, so it, 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 the art, there's 37 pieces that were curated from across the country and Canada, and I think it's our 10th year. We work with some institutions around the, the, the art galleries and the private sector as well, and um, yeah, we auction them off. For, for a week and then close it with a live show. Um, and so the show is really a, a powerful show. That's sort of our pinnacle for making ourselves look good to our supporters where we talk about the work we've done and we, and we showcase the community and the teams who are working on it. So it's free. It'd be great if people can tune in and just watch that for one hour on May 5th, 830 to 930. And you'd also see the artists. And, and that is our... That's what keeps us going. That's what keeps the lights on. That's 80% of our core funding comes from that one event once a year. And, um, and it's, yeah, it's probably one of the happiest days. So if you go to CA, you'll see how you can, how you can watch it that day, or you can follow how the art's doing, or if you wanted to see some incredible artists who are, you know, um, becoming sort of the iconic image makers of their time in Canada. Um, yeah, you can see it right there on that site, and and view the paintings and the and the photography that's um, that that is being put up to support swimmable, drinkable, fishable water on the Great Lakes. Thank you, and uh, I encourage everybody to take a look at that. And I wish you the very best of luck with it, um, Mark Matson. You are amazing and uh, just an incredible guest. I can't thank you enough for taking time from your very busy schedule to join us. Helen, before you let me go, I just have to go back to something you and Tyler said at the very beginning about the Guardian. Yes, yes, Cleveland. I just want you to know that one day I'm hoping that they change the other part of their name. So it's the Lake Erie Guardians against the Lake Ontario Blue Jays. <laughs> I like that idea. Yeah, let's get to it. <laughs> and we'll, change, we'll change their name to the watershed just for one day a year to support all the work you're doing and everyone's doing to um, give meaning and force to our, our laws. And I, I love to see the hockey teams and the baseball teams and sort of take on their watershed um, name once a year just to remind people of you know where we are and, and, and how important these great lakes are to our community and our future it's a very clever idea something i think could almost could be a national uh, acknowledgement of uh of so many of these ballparks are, are certainly along um the water so what a great idea very clever so thank you mark really truly you you know your stuff you're brilliant and i hope you continue doing what you're doing because you are 
truly making a difference. You are a conservation hero of the Great Lakes. Thank you for joining us on this episode of North Coast Chronicles, Tales from the Great Lakes. I'd love to hear from our listeners. Send your comments or suggestions for future podcasts to northcoastchronicles at gmail.com. The opinions expressed on North Coast Chronicles does not necessarily represent the opinion of the U.S. Department of Transportation. Join us next month as we ask the question, is the Great Lakes the next climate refuge? Until then, be good to one another.